again, everybody. It's time for the Mainland Podcast. We're up to episode number 61, and I am Michael Citro from TheMainland.com, the managing editor and founder. Joining me this week, as usual, Andrew Harrison, our senior columnist. Andrew, how's it going, man? It's going pretty well, Michael. How's it going for you? Well, it's going really crappy after a 3-1 loss to Seattle on Sunday, a, a game that really began with a very with with a lot of promise with an early goal from Sev Hines and then it just looked like a team that had never played defense before ever in in their history. Yep. Um, what's crazy about this game and we'll get into the specifics here in a minute. What's crazy about the game to me is you look at the if you look at the possession and the passing accuracy and the duels won and that kind of thing you would without knowing the final score you would never think that it was a lopsided scoreline. But you look at the score and you go, okay, or you look at the highlights and you say, okay, well, no wonder. They had three basically wide-open goals and a couple other pretty wide-open looks at goal that they failed to capitalize on. And it really could have been a much worse game. And then again, you know, even so, as badly as Orlando City played at the back, you know, they, they hit the crossbar near the end, which could have maybe given them a, a lifeline and a little bit of a boost against a team that had traveled all the way across the country and may have gotten back in the game. So I guess let me just ask you what your overall thoughts were on Sunday's performance and, and, and what transpired at Camping World Stadium. My thought, my, my initial thought is that we just, we regressed from what we had done against New England. We had taken some positives that we had really should have been able to take away from that game and just forgot about the fundamentals. We went back to... I feel like trying to win the game on paper and, you know, possession does count, but goals count more. You can have more shots on goal. You can have more shots on target. You can have more set pieces, but if you don't score goals, you don't win games. And I feel like we just kind of got back to that idea of short passing, keeping it really tight, keeping it tight, really controlled. And it, the problem is when we fall apart. We fall apart badly because we are so tight. We are passing it. We are trying to get a give-and-go rhythm. But that doesn't work in this league right now for 70% of the teams that we face. And it, I thought we were going to be able to make those adjustments. And Seattle just showed that realistically we couldn't adjust to a team that was always going to beat us. Realistically, on paper, they had better talent they were in a slump, but when they came to us, they made us look like we were the slumping team, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it's a team that just had picked up a DP and had played one game already with him uh, against L.A., and he had looked fantastic in that game, and he obviously played very, very well against Orlando City and Nicholas Ladero. Yeah. Uh, we talked about him last week on the, on the program. We were not going to be surprised by him, and obviously nobody's surprised by uh, Clint Dempsey or Jordan Morris. And those three really created a lot of problems for Orlando City. But I think the problem really started when Kevin Molino tweaked his hamstring in midweek. Um, Orlando City went into the game with a, an attacking midfield of Kaká in the middle uh, with Breck Shea on his left and Haji Berry on the right. Now, that didn't sound good to me on paper, and it didn't look good on the field. Um, if you look at the three players that played in the attacking midfield, you'll see that two of the fewest touches in the game came from Haji Berry and Breck Shea. Uh, they could not get on the ball. They couldn't get open. When they were open, 
for whatever reason, they couldn't get the ball, and uh, when they had the ball, they turned it over. I, I thought the wing play was terrible. I thought that Seattle did a really good job of putting both uh, Evans and Marshall on Kyle Laren and choking off, uh, you know, uh, Kaká's, you know, outlet. So basically, what they were saying was, uh, it's okay for Kaká to get the ball. What we're going to do is force him left or right, and you know, take away his forward distribution. I thought they did a really good job with that game plan, and Kaká for all his effort and all his work and I thought he played pretty well not you know great but I thought he played well which I can't say about a lot of the players he could not link up with anybody because Barry would turn the ball over immediately Breck Shea would turn the ball over immediately and he had no alley to get the ball to Kyle Laren and so it looked like to me they put Kaká on an island and that really hurt Orlando City yeah and I think we've talked about that before is that we need Kaká to be that playmaker. He is that number 10. And I think when you start surrounding him with parts that he doesn't trust or doesn't think is going to get the result that he anticipates, such as a Haji Berry with a, a heavy first touch 95% of the time, he's not going to use that outlet. So what that then does is basically allow more guys on him because they're not worried about Barry being a threat. I think they also kind of did that with um, Breck Shader Day. And as you really mentioned, they just completely closed out Laren as a, as a lone forward. I thought Marshall mm-hmm. and Evans had a really great game. Um, they didn't really put a foot wrong marking a lone striker. They obviously fell asleep for the goal, but you just saw that in them. They weren't ready for it. Kakab put in a laser precision ball, and it went in the back of the net. Other mm-hmm. than that, realistically, we hurt ourselves rather than Seattle having a great performance. You can't really say their goals were great. They were just complete defensive lapses on our part. I think if we'd been able to play to the level that we had been against New England, we would have had a much stronger effort, and I wouldn't feel so upset about this result because this was really one where we could have started to turn our season around and we let them come in and basically steal three points yeah even a draw would have put the the team above the red line uh above new england with a game in hand still so it it was a it was a very uh, disastrous result for orlando city in in the playoff chase a home game which they're they're starting to run out of and uh You know, there, there's not going to be a whole lot of them left uh, the rest of the season, and you got to take three points when you can, especially against a team that was second uh, from the bottom uh, and recently occupied the bottom slot in the Western Conference. Uh, but Seattle does have a lot of talent. I, I thought that, uh, like you, I thought that Evans and, and Marshall did a good job of of surrounding Laren and making him hard to find and making him a, a non-tempting target. Uh, Orlando City did get some crosses into Kyle, that he was able to get ahead on, but they were just a smidge high, and he wasn't able to get on, you know, on top of them and get power and power them downward like you'd like. He he just barely get a forehead on it and and send them high. Um, so there were opportunities there where Kyle did shake loose, and and had the service been a little bit better on some of those, he he might have been able to uh, to make a difference in the game. But he was he was again he was a guy who didn't and he normally doesn't have a ton of touches in a game. Mm-hmm. But he was another one of those guys who, who didn't get a lot of touches, and that was part of the reason. I, I think that if Molino plays, that's a little bit. It's going to be a little bit different because I think Molino, again, uh, he playing on the left side as he had been, uh, would have uh, done a better job locking that side down. He, he uh, and 
and Bowden have a pretty good partnership defensively, as, as Jason Christ mentioned. And also, uh, he gives Kaká somebody who can play off of, and he knows where he's going to go, and he trusts him. And it takes the rookie off the field and allows Breck to maybe roam a little bit and, and um, you know, waits for those interplays of, of uh, passes between Molino and Kaká and to, to draw the attention of the defense. And then all of a sudden, you've got a wide-open Breck Shea uh, on the right side. So I, I think there were some opportunities missed because – um, again, you, you know, you hate to say that the team is built around only a couple of players, but I think this team really is mm-hmm. uh, built around just a, a couple of, of absolutely good players, and and just the rest are just role players at this point. And, and you know, it, it's again, it's it, it, it's it's beating a dead horse a little bit, Andrew. But I think second year in the league kind of thing, really. I mean, yeah. I think that five years from now, the, the the quality across the board should be higher. I think it has to be, man. I'm just I'm looking at the Seattle Sounders lineup, and you look at the people that came off the bench for them. They had Zach Scott replace Jovan Jones, both MLS veterans with I'm going to guess at least 50 plus games under their belt for both of them. You had mm-hmm. Nelson Valdez, who okay, he's hit a bit of a dry spot, but he was very and a couple he had a couple of posts, <laughs> and he had that talent to be able to come off it and rest Dempsey. Dempsey didn't play more than 60 minutes. That's how bad we were. They never thought we were going to get back into the game. And Mm. then just also, they got Hercules Gomez on the bench, Eric Freiburg, like people who can come in and change games for them if they're not having the results that they want. Um, I feel like we don't really have that because either those players should be starting. Like I think you're going to see Perez Garcia start this week if he's got the full 90 minutes in him in place of Barry. Um, if Molino's not fit to go, or he's at least going to be able to spot off Molino once he's completely burned his juice. Um, we have to go around picking up those extra people, and you know you have to start stockpiling and learning to play this league with its rules because it's obviously possible. Seattle has a stacked team and a stacked bench, but they're not breaking any rules. There is no luxury tax like there is in basketball or baseball. Mm-hmm. We're all playing by the same rules, so how can there be such a gulf in depth between this team and, and, and other teams in the league is quite astounding sometimes. Well, we're not all playing with LA Galaxy rules, but we are well, all mostly playing with the same rules. Which, uh, I still think it's it's witchcraft and backdoor deals for the LA Galaxy. I think that's what's going on there. But uh, you mentioned Matias Perez-Garcia, and I thought that one of the bright spots for Orlando City was when they brought him on, and he's... He'd only been with the team for two training sessions and probably doesn't even know all of his teammates' names yet. And he came on and made a huge difference because he gave Kaká somebody who could who could play with him and would go into the spaces where Kaká could get the ball and, and knew where he would go and that kind of thing. And it looked like he and Kaká had been playing together for, for the whole season at, at, at times. And he got into dangerous spots and drew uh, free kicks in dangerous areas. And I, I thought that he was a real uh, gem. Uh, considering the fact that he'd only been with the team for two days. Oh, without a doubt. I think my my only criticism was that he wasn't brought on at halftime when the game was potentially still salvageable. I think if you can bring him on there, just like when they'd taken Barry off at the 45 in the New England game, I think you then stand a potential chance. We hadn't had a great first half, but we were were only one down. When you bring on Garcia, you're already two down. You've got a really uphill battle, but he played really well. I think if you go back to what we were saying earlier, you know, all of a sudden he allowed Laren to get a little bit more space. He gave 
um, Kikar another outlet, which meant that they did have to mark him out of the game. Um, and then it started to see a few more opportunities, but we still didn't see anything that was going to change the direction of this game at 3-1 down. But I think it's a great potential trade. It gets us more offense on this field, which is, even though we don't have trouble scoring, um, we pretty much have scored in every game for quite a while, except I think the 4-0 loss at Dallas. Um, we're going to have to get better at that because if we if we can't stop conceding, we're going to have to score more goals, and I think he will eventually be able to do that for us. I'm all in favor of scoring more goals and for, for not conceding as many. Hey, hey um, that's the game. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. Jason Kreiss, after the game, said that it looked like at times the team was playing an offside trap and they weren't supposed to be playing an offside trap. Uh, our Brent Petkus uh, had a really good analysis piece today about the back line playing way too high up, uh, 40 yards from goal. And that's what kind of cost them, uh, you know, quite a bit against Seattle. Not only not only playing that really high line, but also having both center backs drawing attention to the first runner, leaving the second runner wide open. And that it happened repeatedly in the game, not just with Dempsey, but also with Valdez later and also once with uh, Ivanchitz. Uh, who also had a, a chance that uh, Bendik uh, came out and made him uh, shoot early, and he, he trickled it just wide. So there were a number of opportunities for Seattle based on the same thing. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a new coach. He's trying to put new and instill new systems and ideas and thoughts in these players' heads. Are they maybe just overthinking things right now, or are they are they just maybe a little bit fatigued from all of the, the knowledge they're trying to soak up in a short period of time? What do you think is the problem? Because as, as let's face it, as bad as the, the back line has been this year, and we've complained about it before, it's usually one or two little switch-offs mm-hmm. a game. It's not usually a full game of just a, a calamity like it was. I think it's a case of doing what you know when things go wrong. So they conceded one, and then they were just like, okay, we'll, we'll go back to what we were doing for the previous part of the season. We were able to pull it out. And then I think there was those just adjustments where they all of a sudden remembered they weren't supposed to be playing that. And then they were able to fix it and kind of close it off. But I think we've seen this team play a high line way too often. Um, last game, when we got Chicago Fire this week, the last time we played them, I, the number of times that David Akam was able to burn Seb Hines because they were playing such a high line is what's really hurt this team. I think trying to instill new methods into them is going to take some time, but you're also trying to undo, you know, 18, 19 months of a previous coach's system, and that doesn't happen overnight, and it's not going to be the default for these players for a little while without instilling your authority on this, but that's going to take more than two weeks of training sessions. Um, I think Doing extra training is certainly going to help with that. But with a team that is this bad on defense, don't expect it to be an instant solution. And I think he's going to continue to work on that. Um, Will we not concede this weekend? I don't see that being the case. Yeah, it's uh, David Kahn has typically uh, pulled one out for Chicago, usually when uh, we've played them. Uh, the good news is Orlando City's usually won the games or they've drawn, so uh, a result is certainly possible at Chicago, and it would it would definitely be a big help if they could go out to Bridgeview, Illinois, Toyota Park, and get three points. Um, one thing I'd like to do, and you can't really tell, I, I'd love to go back 
and um, watch it, but I don't think you can see it on TV. Maybe next time I'm at, I'm at the stadium, I need to, to, to concentrate on this, on watching for this. But what I'd like to know is what Orlando City is doing when a fullback pushes up. Are they dropping? Are they, are they kind of shifting into a three at the back with the opposite side fullback uh, and the two center backs? Or are they dropping a defensive midfielder or... You know, and if they're not doing any of those things, obviously they're they're not doing things right. Yeah. So I want to know I want to know what kind of is the system that they're trying to play, and 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 sort of uh, once you know what they're trying to do, you can see how successful or unsuccessful they're being. So uh, I'll, I'll watch for that uh, from here on out. I, I think what I just uh, I think what they're trying to do is they move as a complete unit. I I've watched a lot of games on TV this year due to my wife being pregnant but we we've kind of noticed that they always continuously move is one unit but the lines don't stay the same there's never that ability for you to look across and say well that's where the defense is that's where the midfield is it's just this like player melange of everybody trying to figure out what their role is and you know for as long as time we've been playing with Seb and Mateo so far apart like Argentina played in the Gold Cup final but the problem mm. is they're not that quality of player. And so we're continuously breaking down. And I think you'll start to see that hopefully he's going to start instilling that need to keep a solid line because we just don't do it at any part of the park in any stage mm-hmm. of the game. Well, uh, unfortunately, we played Seattle because uh, if we'd played San Jose and Wondolowski, he might have missed those shots. Uh, but Dempsey's not going to miss a wide open net. No. And uh, from about six yards away, and he unfortunately did not. Not twice, um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so uh, anyway, 3-1 uh, to Seattle uh, in two matches against the Sounders. Orlando City has lost 7-1 to, to one in both, you know, in the com- by a combined score of getting two losses there. Uh, my man of the match, I selected, I did grades this week, and I selected Kaká basically more or less on default. I had a really hard time picking a man of the match. I thought that the, uh, I took some heat for my selection. Um, people surprisingly wanted, uh, were saying Antonio Nocherino should have been man of the match. And I, I didn't think that if you look at his individual performance and Carrasco's, I didn't think they necessarily played poorly. Uh, but I also grade sort of on a, how did you interact with the other parts? And if you give up that many breakaways and that many golden chances, mm-hmm. then the defensive midfielders are partly accountable for that. Now, you know, they're not responsible maybe for the runners, but they are responsible for closing down those through balls. Mm-hmm. And they weren't doing that. In my opinion, you know, they were given, I, I thought Ladero gave, just was given way too much space. I would have just shadowed that guy uh, all over the pitch and just made sure he wasn't going to be able to provide service because I think he really dictated the game in that midfield. So uh, I went with Kaká because I thought that he was somebody who was trying to do all of the things that he's supposed to be doing out there and was getting no help. I I thought that he was trying to lift the team and the team wasn't going with him for whatever reason. So he he was my man of the match, but uh, with a caveat that I didn't really see a clear-cut favorite for man of the match. Who was yours? Um I'm kind of really right there with you. I, I give it to Kaká just because I don't think there was a better option um, this time around. I, and, and that's not, you know, you talk about people wanting no Serino. I'm, this isn't most improved player. 
this is who played best in this game. And mm-hmm. he wasn't the best player in this game. Did he play better than the previous six or seven outings he's had? Yeah. But he was still at a loss for quite a lot of those breakaways and not shadowing Lodero. When you've got two defensive midfielders, you have to be able to take care of a guy like him, especially if you want to claim the level of talent that you have as Antonio Notorino. You have to be able to show that you have that talent and that wherewithal to be able to mark somebody like that out of the game. Um, I went with Kaká for virtually the same reasons as you. He, he looked like he was trying. The problem is his supporting cast just hadn't read the script for that game, and mm-hmm. he couldn't lead them where they needed to go. You started to see it when MPG came on. You start to see his bright spark and get that ability. Um if MPG had played more minutes, I probably would have given it to him. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Kaká mm-hmm. for me was was the only player who was trying and, and was capable of receiving a man of the match for that game. Yeah, MPG, in fact, was the other guy who I thought... I mean, when I narrowed it down to basically uh, Kaká, MPG, Notorino, Carrasco, and then I just eliminated the defensive midfielders because of the... <laughs> the you know, again... It's a team sport, so no matter what you do in terms of your passing and your your clearances and your tackles and whatever the, the key stats are for your position, no matter what you do, you still have to work in concert with your teammates to close down those chances. And for me, the back six is the is the key to stopping those types of chances, not just the back four, not just Seb Hines and David Mateos, but that entire back six in that shape are responsible for, for keeping those chances you know, down, and they didn't do that. And so, you know, I, I marked about a point off for everybody uh, involved in that back line and, and that defensive midfield. So, uh, because other than that, I mean, Carrasco and Notorino actually, going forward, they looked fine. They were good. Uh, they just, you know, matching up with their with their defensive uh, partners, not so good. So, okay, so Kaká is, is both of our reluctant man of the match selection. Um and we both were kind of impressed with MPG, but again, not enough uh, sort of incomplete since he didn't have a full performance, not even a, a full half to show what he could do. He definitely was dangerous, but, you know, he still needs to um, provide some goals and, and provide some scoring chances for others and, and really wasn't able to, to pull that off because uh, there just wasn't enough on that night. There just wasn't enough there. So we move onward and upward, and, and hopefully we can take care of the fire and, uh, and uh, you know, come home with three points uh, after Sunday's Sunday afternoon's game. I'm going to turn our attention now to Orlando City B because they seem to be the new cardiac cats. Um, they decided uh, to only score one goal all night and then right at the death of the game give one up. And right as I was angrily writing down how this was a draw but was still really a loss, they came right back down and scored in the next 30 seconds. So uh, a, a big 2-1 to one victory uh, over a team, that w- Toronto FC2 team that was trying to catch them. Uh, you know, sort of didn't move up in the standings, but solidified more their, their spot above the red line. Uh, I thought Orlando City B played well, but they weren't finishing chances. And, uh, you know, again, they, they just showed that resilience is that that late goal they gave up, they decided they were not going to stand for that. And uh, a nice play uh, by uh, Pierre De Silva, who came on as a second-half substitute, and Michael Cox with a, a, a really great one-touch turn to get a shot in on goal and score the winning goal. 
Yeah, I think they're the, they're the team that you got to get behind right now because <laughs> they're the only bright spark. I mean, they're now unbeaten in nine, which is a great run because we could certainly say that we weren't expecting that from <laughs> them at the start of the season. Um, yeah. It was also great to see Lewis Neal start to lead by example and get on the score sheet and become that player that I think they need him to be for a development team um, and also what I think he sees his role as being. Um, but great solid performance from them overall. I think it was great that we were able to snatch one out um, and, and steal some points from a team that, you know, is still looking, they're not doing as well as we are, but you, you every point counts at this day of the season when we're running out of home games just like the, the main team. We have to mm -hmm. start getting points where we can, and this solidifies our place above the red line. And if we can get that goal of, you know, our goal was to be in the playoffs of USL at the end of the season, um, we're really making good strides towards that. Yeah, nobody saw this coming. Uh, if you would have taken five five games into the season, Orlando City, or Orlando Pride, and Orlando City B, which of these three teams is going to make the playoffs mm. or has a good chance to make the playoffs with a couple of months left in the season? you would have not picked Orlando City B would have been your third choice and only because there wasn't more choices. They would have been your last choice. They would have been on Man no of the Match. <laughs> they, they, were, they were just bad. They were really bad early in the season. And, and credit to Anthony uh, Pulis for, for turning them around and really getting some solid performances and development out of guys like you know Richie Larea. We talked about the 17-year-old Pierre De Silva. Michael Cox has gotten better and continues to get better. He still has... Four or five inexplicable plays a game for me uh, where he tries to take guys on at the corner of the box and loses the ball. Um, but he's come a long way in, in the box, and, and, and uh, certainly they've been helped by guys like uh, Mikey Ambrose and Tony Rocha, who are now with the senior team. And, um, you know, I think also uh, Mendoza is a guy that's helped. I think that uh, one great thing about this past weekend is we got to see Tommy Redding back in action. Uh, that was something that I almost forgot to mention. Tommy Redding back in action. He's uh, He's been out for a while with a hamstring issue. He, he went down and played a game and, and played quite well, I thought. Yeah, I think it it's that's what this team is all about, is about getting people minutes. We also didn't mention, you know, that Higita dropped down to potentially get those types of minutes. Yep. And, and that's what this team is all about. It's about making sure that before you put them in the big game, that they have the ability to go those types of minutes and, and twist and turn and, and see what their fitness is. And I think that's really important. It's really good to see that Redding, who I think has had probably, uh, you know, I would put him in at least the top five of our best players this season for the main squad, um, being able to start to come back and hopefully resolve some of those issues that we're having on defense and MLS. Well, he certainly will probably, uh, I, I shouldn't say certainly, he probably will be the option to replace Mateos, who is uh, suspended for yellow card accumulation. Uh, when the team goes up to Chicago, uh, Redding was, he didn't play the full game. I think he played about 60 minutes, I want to say. Um, if you didn't see OCB's game against Toronto FC2, uh, obviously it's still available on YouTube. You can go check it out. You see Chris Nagita, as, as Andrew mentioned. Um, here was a guy who got sent down because he was ineligible to play on Sunday in the MLS match. So why not get him some minutes and keep him match fit, right? So he sent the kid down, and for about the first 25 minutes of the game, I thought, here's a guy who does not want to be in the USL <laughs> yeah. right now. Uh, he just didn't look interested. He couldn't really combine with anybody. He wasn't himself, and he looked like he might at any time 
get sent off. But to his credit, he was one of the best players on the pitch in the second half. Yeah, and I think... You know, we kind of saw it with Rochez at the start of the season, and he never he never changed his attitude, so he got shipped. I think Hagida eventually realized that I'm not being punished. I'm doing this because I play this game, and I need to play this game, and I'm really good at playing this game, so why would I deliberately stink? I should show yeah. them what I can do because I want my place back. I don't want to have to go through this again. I'm going to show that I learned my lesson, and mm-hmm. I think that's really important part for a young kid to be able to grow and also he didn't get booked he played 90 minutes of football (laughs) and didn't get booked if he can take that and then all of a sudden he doesn't have one less suspension and realistically this is a game where you would say that he's going to get booked he's going down to usl that's more scrappy that he really kind of was a little bit pissed off about having to play in and he doesn't get booked. That's growth. That's maturity. <laughs> and that's what the, the main team needs. So yeah. it, I think it's great that we can do that. Um, I think it's interesting how we skirted around the rules about that potentially. You know, I, But maybe that'll be something that gets changed in the offseason. But I think it was great to be able to do that. And I think we should do that for more players if they're fit enough. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it really helps the the team much. I mean, you know, somebody was saying that, well, you know, he gets to, why does he get to play? He's, he's suspended from the one league and why does he get to play and keep his match fitness? Well, you're not really going to lose match fitness in a week. So that's not really a good argument. And if anything, you don't want to risk him in a game like that because he could get hurt. Um, but, you know, like you said, he, he kind of responded. It didn't respond right away. He looked like he was a little unsure of whether or not he wanted to be out there, but eventually he turned it around and, and decided he wanted to play and got into it and really uh, again like I said he was one of their better players in the second half and I thought that that was important for him because here he uh, is on a team with a new head coach who doesn't know him all that well mm-hmm. and who has kind of settled into a pairing of Nocherino and Carrasco the last couple of games so you know he's got to impress Jason Kreis if he wants to get on the field and this was an opportunity to do that and I thought uh it was important for him to play well. And it, it's also important to note that Jason Christ was in attendance at the game. Um, and uh, so was uh, uh, Brad Friedel, in fact, was at the game, the uh, the U-19 coach uh, for the national team. So uh, he was playing, uh, or Tommy or Tyler Turner was playing in front of his national team coach. So that was kind of an interesting thing, too. Ty, uh, Turner played on the left side, uh, and then Zach Ellis Hayden played on the right side. Too many hyphenated names at OCB, by the way. Uh, and Mikey Ambrose, who was loaned to OCB for the weekend, didn't even dress, and then dressed the next night for Orlando City. So uh, that was a kind of a surprise. It was an interesting that they even bothered to uh, to send or to announce that Ambrose was sent down for the game. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, you, you then have to look at the fact that maybe they thought Molino was going to go, and then he tweaks it, and so they make mm-hmm. that decision to not risk him. Um, yeah, strange, but once again, why this team is in such close proximity to each other so that we're able to kind of deal with those things on the fly. But as we kind of talked about in the, regards to Seattle, we should have better depth than needing to have to trade people within 24 to 48 hours notice. We should be able to deal with people get one person getting hurt and not having to rely on somebody who's just trying to step up and potentially going to make their, you know, 
that entrance into a game when you need to a moment a game changer and that's not necessarily that person right now yeah well good win for ocb uh in the long run they're going to need to win some games on the road to maintain that playoff spot because they only have two home games left uh and every every game with against a team below them in the standings is a is a key matchup and even the the teams that are right just just right above them they need those are important games to get something out of because they have to protect their you know their spot right now and they don't have a lot of games at home left to do it so they've got to get results on the road so it's going to be a tough road for OCB but right now they're in pretty pretty good spot um, Orlando Pride of course off until later in the month uh, with the international break going on for the Olympics uh, the U.S. won Group G. Uh, Alex Morgan helped do that with a goal in the first game against New Zealand. Did not score against France and uh, came close, but did not score against Colombia in a game where I thought, uh, in Manaus, where I thought or I, I thought the U.S. played perhaps their worst game that I've seen in years. Uh, didn't look interested, didn't combine with their passes, turned the ball over very carelessly without even being under pressure at times. And... Um, Columbia, uh, to their credit, didn't get a lot of the ball, but when they did, they were dangerous, and they, they on their set pieces were amazing. Uh, scored on a couple of free kicks. Uh, one that was an absolute howler from Hope Solo. Uh, the first one, she was just, it was right in her hands, right at her, and she let it squib through into the net. Um, and uh, so the U.S. ended up with a draw. Uh, I, I thought it was telling that with, you know, just about five minutes left to go in the game after Columbia had, leveled it up that the u.s continued to slowly pass it around and play for the draw i know that they only needed a draw to win the group so you want to protect that but the u.s that i know would have gone for the win yeah i think it kind of showed that they're expecting something bigger still to come and so they chose to be restrain themselves because they're playing in a very humid environment. It was going to take a lot out of them, and I think they just decided that they'd already done enough in the first two games. Even if I think even if they'd lost, they wouldn't have been out. They didn't need to really stretch themselves, and so they didn't. And I think that goes to wise game management when the fact is you want to leave winning this tournament. Yeah, I think they're in a pretty good pretty good spot, but. Uh, they play Sweden on Friday, and uh, if they get by them in the quarterfinals, they will get the winner of Brazil and Australia. Yes. Yeah, Brazil, Australia. So uh, that will be a difficult game either way. And the good thing is Friday, when Brazil and Australia play each other, we'll know if we're get which Pride players we're getting back uh, early yep. because it'll either be Monica if if the hosts go out. Or it'll be Alloway and Catley. So, um, you know, good news for Tom Sermani. You're going to get some some folks back after the quarterfinals. And uh, Canada plays. They won their group. Uh, Jose Belanger played 90. And, and uh, I think they really did a good job of shutting Germany down. And uh, they look pretty dangerous in this tournament. Yeah. So Yeah, they, they, they shocked everybody by beating Germany. And I think good luck to them. I think they've come ready for this tournament and hopefully it'll it'll pan out for them and i think they can meet the u.s in the final if they go all the way yeah i believe yeah yeah because orlando if 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 the u.s wins friday against sweden they've got the brazil and australia winner 
uh, in the semifinal. So then the other side of the bracket has Canada. Yeah. Uh, so Canada is playing, let's see, I think France is playing China. And I forget who Canada is playing. Or I might have that backwards. Maybe Ca- Canada is playing France, maybe. Yes. And then I forget who I forget who China's playing. So anyway, um, you know, I guess from a selfish perspective, I hope that the U.S. goes through to the semis and none of the other Pride teams do, <laughs> <laughs> because it would be nice to have them back for the Washington spirit. It would be. I don't know if it makes much of a difference to the overall Pride season, but it would be nice that I think if this season could end well so that they continue to grow their fan base and move into the new stadium with a a good, strong base behind them for next season. Yep, I'm looking forward to that new stadium, too, after seeing some new uh, pictures of it in the last week. Uh, It's it's getting me more and more excited, but um, I'm trying to temper that and wait for next year to be excited next year. Oh, get excited right now. You can do it. I can, but I don't know. Maybe that would take away from my excitement later. I, I kind of have this thought that maybe I want to stand in the supporter section, in the safe standing section for opening day next year, and then sort of write a column about that experience, mm-hmm. what that's like and everything, um, which is it's kind of a, like a love-hate thing because I really do love being in the press box and being uh, able to you know have – the replays and that kind of thing at my disposal and the stats and then also be able to bounce things off the other reporters and that kind of thing during the game. But, um, and also to coordinate all the, all of our coverage, which is pretty extensive on game day. Um, but I think it would be really, really special to be in that safe standing section for the first game and, um, you know, and write about that experience. Yeah, I'm going to be, I, I will have a newborn baby by then, but I will be going come hell or high water. <laughs> all right uh i i think that it'll be i think it'll be great but you know i think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because first before any of that happens uh we have a game this sunday against uh the chicago fire Atlanta city against chicago fire and um we've got a guest a very special guest going to come in here right now and help us uh analyze that game and more about major league soccer right after this Joining us this week on the Mainland Podcast, we're very honored to have national soccer reporter with 442 and uh, the Chicago Fire sideline reporter, Paul Tenorio, formerly of the Orlando Sentinel. Paul, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. You know, it's been good here in Chicago because it's summertime, so I'm used to, I'm used to the weather. I'm, I'm going to be in a little bit more trouble in a few months, Michael. Yeah, I would, I would think so. <laughs> when the when those chill winds start coming off the lake uh, in well, probably September, but um, certainly November, December. It's not going to be the same as the old days here in Central Florida. Uh, Paul, before we get started, why don't you tell folks where they can find you on uh, online? Yeah, uh, easy enough on Twitter, at Paul Tenorio. Um, I would also encourage people to follow us at 442USA. I'm really proud of the work we've done at the site um, to build up our coverage, to try to build our audience. Um, a lot of people putting in a lot of hard work. Um, and, and a lot of really good stories and, and um, features and interviews and things like that, the Stat Zone app that we have. So, you know, I want to point people towards 442USA, and you can find that too at 442.com slash US. And that's spelled out. That's not the number. That's right. It's all spelled out. Yep. 
And it's, I have to say, that's one of the bright spots, I think, on on, uh, on the net in the last uh, year. That's really come on and, and, and become a, a regular part of, of my daily routine as well. I, I, like, uh, I like the content you guys are bringing. Uh, so I guess I'll start out by asking uh, a question on actually on behalf of someone else. We've got a, a, a question from Twitter uh, from one of our listeners, and uh, this is from... Chris. Chris wants to know, it's actually two questions. What do you think, Paul, is the biggest, single biggest need for Orlando City, and which core players do you think will not be on the roster next season? Well, the first one I think is an easy question to answer. The second one, a little tougher, just because in, unless you know the budget structure of a team and the buyout capabilities, um, it gets harder to answer. But we'll start with just saying that the single biggest need for Orlando City is center back. Uh, they need a high level quality starter that's going to cost them cash and and they need that money to pay off right because Mateos has not been good enough for what he's making uh and and if you spend that kind of money in MLS you need it to be a hit and I think that to me is the biggest need they need somebody that can organize that back line uh keep things kind of um just a little tighter and and I I think that the, the person they bring in needs to be athletic uh, ideally, it's somebody that you pair with Tommy Redding, who I think is the center back of the future for that team. But you need somebody who can come in and command the back line. That's not Tommy's strength. So for me, that's priority number one. And then I think, it, you know, if you look at the fact, look, Jason Christ more than likely is going to go to a 4-4-2 diamond system. Uh, how quickly he does it, we don't know. But if he's going to do it, he's probably going to need a number six, too. So may, I, I think those are one and two. You know, get a Kyle Beckerman-like player. Does he trust Aguita to be that? Nocherino's not that type of player. Um, so if you're going to make that system work, you need that player. So so those are kind of 1A, 1B for me. Um, and then which core players are not on the roster is, is a tougher question to answer because Mateos has another year left on his contract. Um, so do you buy him out? Can you afford to buy him out? That's, that's a question that ownership's going to have to answer. Um, you're probably not going to be able to find somebody who's willing to buy him, and certainly not at, at that price tag, not with an MLS for sure. Uh, I think Notorino is another one who's a candidate that you would try to look to buy out potentially. Um, I know Christ has taken a liking to him. He's been a bit better, but um, I think he's another player that you have to really look at and say, is he worth what he's making on this roster? So those are our two big ones. Um, I, I, I would hesitate to uh, really point to anyone else at this point. I think um you know, Kevin Molino, maybe not the perfect fit for Christ's system, but he's so good at what he does. I think you keep him for another year and, and with the expectation that he plays at the top of the diamond once Kakas contracts up. And, you know, Kyle Laren, I think you keep for another year to, to maximize the transfer fee that you can get from him unless an offer you can't refuse comes along. Agita is another one I could see being shocked, um, believe it or not. You know, he's had he had some sniffs from Europe after last season. They They haven't played him enough to kind of, warrant that look this year, but I could see many, many teams in MLS willing to spend to get a Gita, and I think, you know, the interest in, in Italy probably would still be there as well if you can find the right buyer, so um, you know, maybe those are the three I'll, I'll go with as potentials, Aguita, uh, Nocerino, and, and Mateos. Okay, and so, you, I mean, you mentioned being shocked. Uh, we, we lost um, Coach Adrian Heath about a month ago now, uh, maybe it's a little longer, and we also saw Colin depart earlier this season. Um, did either of those moves kind of shock you? I know you were out of the club a little while from that, but did either of those come as shocks to you? 
Uh, no, not really. I mean, yes and no with Adrian. I think um, you're surprised it happens, but you're not because anyone could see it coming since last year. There were people uh, who wanted Adrian out within the club, and I think that um, I kind of expected him to get a little bit longer. I thought there wasn't a really clear spot in the season once they didn't do it before Copa. Um, but I think they, they saw that they had a prime opportunity. There were some voices on social media um, that that were, you know, kind of anti-Adrian Heath voices that were starting to crop up and get a little bit louder. And then they had the two losses back-to-back. And, and you knew, I think, if you're sitting there in the front office and you're one of the guys who's, who's ready to move on from Adrian Heath, you know with three games in nine days the way they had that Adrian would have a chance to recover in the standings. And at that moment, they had lost two games, got knocked out of the Open Cup, were underneath the red line. It was like, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it now, or else you're going to risk not being able to do it for the rest of the season because it's a team that's not far off from being a playoff team to to begin with. So, um, you know, they jumped at the one opportunity they could. So I I wasn't totally shocked. I, I, you know, I had seen it coming um, in the long view. Uh, With with Aurelian, no. I I mean, I think he was clearly – wasn't in favor with Adrian Heath. And I think also they were looking to move money off the books. I was a little surprised because it immediately hurts the depth of the team, uh, which we've seen play out here over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. And I thought that they could have gotten more because the Red Bulls were in desperate at a desperate place at that point. And I think you could have held them to the fire a little bit, but they didn't really have a GM kind of running the show at the time. I think Nikki Butelich, Butelich is, is uh, a fantastic guy. I think he's going to be a GM. In the near future, I think he's probably going to be named Orlando City's full-time GM in the future. I think he's going to do a really good job. But at the time, he was still doing a lot of studying. From what I understand, um, you know, I, I think he, he still has a, a ways to go, a ways to learn. And I think the, the, the thing that shocked me about the deal was not enough coming back the other way. But, uh, you know, that's that's the nature of the, of the league. Sometimes you, you see an opportunity to get a player off your books and, and you make the move and, um, you know, I think it was a really, really good move for the Red Bulls. Uh, any thoughts to where Adrian Heath might pop up next? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of places I think he could pop up. I think, you know, Atlanta is playing it very, very close to the vest about what they're doing with that coaching job. I wouldn't be surprised if he got an interview, but I don't know. I mean, no one around the league seems to have any idea of what Atlanta's doing. Um, I think Minnesota would be very interested in him. And obviously they have a coach right now in the NASL. That doesn't mean that he's going to be the coach in MLS. Um, We saw that. Look, the Sounders are a great example of it. Very, very successful in the USL. But uh, Brian Schmetzer became an assistant coach and and Ziggy Schmidt uh, stepped in as a head coach. So I think Adrian Heath could be considered there if they are going to look outside of the organization for a head coach. And I think Houston. I think Houston's a, a potential landing spot for Adrian Heath right now as well. Uh, I think that that there are relationships around the league that people form. I, I could see um, him ending up in Houston if, if Wade Barrett isn't able to get them off the schneid a little bit and, and hasn't impressed ownership enough. And then the last one's going to be kind of a surprise, um, and it's a little bit more of a long shot. But, you know, I've heard some whispers that Jay Heaps might be under a little bit of pressure. He maybe eased it on himself uh, by getting the win last night in the U.S. Open Cup semifinals. If he wins a trophy, I think he saves himself. But, you know, if that job opens, I could definitely see Adrian Heath being a fit because the personnel in place in New England already fits perfectly to the way uh, Adrian Heath wants to play. Well, and obviously, um, switching tacks for a second, you talk about Chicago. They had kind of not had a great 
MLS season, they'd kind of gone all in on the U.S. Open Cup, and it hasn't panned out for them. How do they go about trying to kickstart their season with the red line so far away? Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough for them. I think that they are, you know, a few players away from being challengers. They need two midfielders, I think, that are very um, in command of the game, that want the ball, that seek the ball, and want to dictate the game. They don't have anyone in midfield, I think, that really wants to be that guy or is capable of being that guy, and it's really hurt them. They've had to play transition soccer, and they've had to play defensively. And I think they're lacking in confidence. I think that has a big part of it to, part to do with it as well. Um, so to me, I, I don't know how you, you – at this point, you start looking towards the future. If I'm the coach, uh, Velko Panovic, I, I think eventually you start to look at some of the younger pieces you have on the team and the guys that you think you might bring back, you start to give more minutes. The guys that you know are not going to be back the next year, I think you let them sit on the bench. So, you know, for example, if, if you want to see if Nick LaBrocca can be a, a depth guy for you next year, then you, you play Nick LaBrocca a lot more. Um, they're bringing this forward in from Armenia, David Arshakian. Um, he won't be ready this week, but next week he'll get in when the visa paperwork's done. This is a guy that scored 35 goals over the last 50 games in his league uh, in Lithuania. Now, we don't know the level of that league or how it translates to MLS, but you got to throw the guy out there and play him as much as you can and see if this kind of roll of the dice, this low-risk, high-reward pans out. So um, I think that's got to start to be the focus of this team, and I, I would expect to see those guys on the field a lot more and guys like Colin Fernandez, uh, the homegrown player and, and Joey Calistri from Northwestern and some of these younger pieces on the field a lot more. Paul, how do you see this weekend's, uh, you know, starting 11 looking with the, the midweek game at New England and, and coming home to, to play Orlando City? What do you think Chicago does there? You know, I, I'm interested to see. I think, uh, look, I think that they are going to have to emotionally recover as much as anything. Um, but, you know, they need to try to get results now. They've got a very short amount of time in a conference that is that is not very dominant and is, is pretty wide open to, to try to make a run. And in this league, as you know, you win two or three games in a row and something that looked impossible, all of a sudden not so impossible anymore, right? I mean, if the Fire win, let's just say, three of their next four games, then at, with 25 games played, they're looking at, 27 points it's not too far off from where orlando city is right now where new england is right now so um you know i think they've got to go for it i think you'll see luis solignac the new addition from colorado i think you'll see him start up top they'll play michael delu underneath him which is where they think is his best spot um not as the, the striker up there on doing all the work that he's been doing the last few weeks so i think that'll be the biggest change uh david akam probably still on the left either arturo alvarez on the right, I would really like to see them play John Goosens deeper in that number eight spot. I don't know that that'll happen, but I do expect the biggest change to see is Solignac starting up top with uh, Michael Delu underneath, who's a very good player, by the way. Michael Delu, very crafty, very smart. He's going to score goals in this league if he can get some service. Well, and obviously this weekend's kind of a big game for Orlando as well. You get Chicago's trying to restart, but Orlando's trying to stay in touch with that red line. If they don't win this weekend, do you think Orlando City just starts to go into full rebuilding mode? I don't think so. Again, I think that, um, you know, this is a league that's so wide open. And when you look at how much is left in the season, you know, you're not, you're, they're not going to be out of it. They're not going to be out of it till the end. I'm, I'm not convinced that New England is a very good team. Even after seeing them last night, I don't. I think DC United has its own issues. 
Um, so I think that six, seven, eight is going to be, you know, right down to the very last week of the season, like it was last time. So um, I, I think they're going to go through growing pains. Uh, they'll be helped with guys getting healthy. They, they really need some pace at the back. Um, Rafa Ramos coming back, Tommy Redding coming back. That that helps them a lot um, because you, you don't want Kevin Alston one-on-one with David Akam too much. Uh, you don't want Luke Bowden one-on-one with anyone that's got pace. And uh, as we saw earlier this year, you definitely don't want Seb Hines or Mateos isolated with the common space. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, Paul, the uh, the big news I think over the the um, you know transfer window I, I think was the Bedoya signing in Philadelphia, and of course that touched Chicago quite a bit with uh, with the uh, allocation order. And it seems to me, looking back uh, at the last few signings, that Chicago. Either people don't want to go there, or people are, or, or maybe Chicago's just camping on the number one spot, trading it to the number two so they can get back to the number one, and just using that to build assets. What do you see as their strategy there, or, and do you think that players want to play for the Chicago Fire? Well, I think the strategy is has been very clear. Nelson Rodriguez, the one thing I, I really enjoy about him, he's very refreshing, is that he's very, very blunt and honest and transparent with his plans. And he has said from the very beginning that they did not have plans to, to sign a major player in this window. Um, they came into the fire, and, and there was very little infrastructure in place in this, in the, when it comes to scouting and, and uh, scouting network. So they wanted time to build up uh, an idea of players around the world and to really do their due diligence on guys. And everything was, was pointing towards January. And he said that over and over and over again. We don't expect to be active in the summer. We, we really want to hit January hard and go get a DP. And now they have two DP spots. So I think that they'll be active in that window. Uh, the Bedoya thing came along. I think it surprised them. Um, they evaluated the situation. They talked to Bedoya, and, and they actually had the option to sign him. I was a little surprised when Nelson Rodriguez said that he passed on Bedoya. I thought that uh, he was a player that could have helped them this season for sure. But I think if you have an idea – in the back of your mind about potential players that you're going to sign. Uh, you need to be dead sure about who you're bringing in. And, and I think when they looked at the situation, they looked at the players they want to add in the next window. And, and if they committed to Bedoya and one of those DP slots is taken, then you, you may be losing a guy you think you're going to get, or you're losing a position that you really want to target. And they opted to get, to get allocation money, which, you know, I've, I've said this before. Paul McDonough once said to me, uh, allocation money is the key to success in MLS because it's so versatile. You can buy down cap space. You can buy down certain players. You can trade it. You can uh, you can use it to, to acquire players from overseas. So um, they've, they've kind of built up a nice big bank of it, and, and I think the eye is towards, towards January, and I think that their expectation is to go add a playmaking midfielder and um, I don't think that necessarily means a traditional number 10. I think it could be kind of more of a, a number eight who likes to be on the ball um, and, and move around the field a ton. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I definitely think it was a little bit of a risk, right, to turn down Bedoya and, and, and say, you know, we believe that if we have a couple more months to really study the situation, we're going to find we're going to find a better player. 
Well, uh, and let me ask you this. Obviously, we, we talk about MLS and really it's not very transparent. We talk, you know, you mentioned allocation money being very, very versatile, but we don't know how many much each team really has. We don't know what they're doing with it. And it's really even hard to keep track of international slots. What would you do personally if you were the commissioner do to change this league and make it more competitive or more available for the national world? Yeah, I think the, the simple solution is to increase the salary cap substantially and uh, lose the allocation money. I think that that just makes things simpler. I think it, it makes the league a little bit more transparent in just that there aren't these all these different things that are confusing to fans. And, you know, for me, what frustrates me as somebody who covers the league and, and who's covered the NFL and I've covered NCAA football and I've been around, you know, at the post with people covering baseball and you know, my, one of my best friends covers baseball for the New York Times, and I see the way that he reports the news and reports transactions and talks about the hot stove. And it's impossible to do that in MLS. It's impossible to talk about the trade deadline with any real authority for a couple reasons. One, I think MLS uh, is a little bit too protective of information, uh, whereas I, th I don't think it's a coincidence that Adam Schefter and Jay Glazer exist. Right. They exist because the league understands that the more reporters are talking about them on TV, the more the storylines are invested in by fans, the more the fans are interested in their sport and their games and buy ticket and gear and all the rest. Um, I think the same goes for baseball and for, you know, the reason why Woj has been so successful covering the NBA. So there's that. There's the fact that it's so protective and, and so, so little such little information leaks out in the grand scheme of things which I'm trying to change. <laughs> um, that's what, you know, I hope that that's why I'm paid essentially. But um, so maybe that's on me a little bit too. But the other side of it is I, I learned information, for example, in this last transfer window, like you're saying, of allocation money going from one team to another team. And you don't know how much allocation money goes. So there is no way to truly evaluate these trades. You cannot say this GM did a good job and this GM did not because if, for example, uh, Bedoya's rights were traded for 400000 in allocation money, then it was an unbelievable trade by Nelson Rodriguez. If it was a total of 100000 then maybe it's a little shakier, right? So that, I think, limits the growth of the league because it's too secretive, It's too there's too many unknowns. And if you're going to have all these procedures in place, then shoot, man, start to let some of this information out so we can talk about it and debate it and say, you know, good deal, bad deal, um, and have these conversations that eventually, when you're covered nationally the way you think MLS will be in 10 years, there, there is a legitimate reason for ESPN to devote the resources to hiring insiders and to having hot stove shows of the transfer deadline shows and all of that. Um, so that's at the most basic level, and then the bigger level is, hey, let's just let's just up the salary cap and lose all this off-budget stuff. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, you take away the talking points, then you take away the talk, yep. and the talk is what drives everything. Uh, Paul, it's been great having you. Before we let you go, I definitely want to get your thoughts on on Sunday's game. I would like to get your key matchup of the game and uh, your predicted scoreline, if you would. Whew. Okay, um, so for me, the, the matchup of the game, if you're looking for the fire, I think you want to get David Akama isolated one-on-one as much as possible. Um, 
either either way, if if Alston starts, you have a speed advantage. If Ramos starts, he's a sh- excuse me a shaky one on one defender at times and and has a quick temper. Um, so I think for the Fire, that's the the big key for them. I think for Orlando City, uh, you know, you really I, I think want to just pressure pressure high up the field. They they don't have a midfield that's going to win the ball, like I said, and they're not going to try to pass out of the back too much. So, a if you can win the ball in the in the attacking third, you're in a really good spot. But um, a lot of times we've seen the fire dump the ball over the top, and and that'll be really advantageous for an Orlando City team that likes to keep the ball and keep possession. So, to me, I would talk. It would be all about making sure you're pressuring in midfield, pressuring the back line, um, and then uh, score prediction. I'm always bad at these, man. Um, <laughs> So are we. Yeah, I, I just, it's always tough. I, I think the emotional toll of Open Cup is going to wear on the fire a little bit. It's pretty tense right now in Chicago with the fans. So I think it's a prime opportunity for Orlando City to get a result. Um, you know, if Molino plays, I'm going to say it's 2 nothing Orlando City. If Molino doesn't play, I think it's going to be a 1-1 draw. How about that? Well, I'm sure our fans would like to have a clean sheet because uh, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but Paul Tenorio from uh, 442.com uh, USA, national soccer writer and the fire sideline reporter. Uh, so glad to have had you on, and we certainly will have you back on in the future if you were willing to come back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, man, I tell you, that just about does it for episode 61 of the Mainland Podcast. We're almost ready to call it a night. Uh, but before we do, we've got a little bit more business to discuss here with the with the Chicago Fire game coming up this weekend. And I also wanted to give you uh, a, a, an opportunity to answer that question from earlier from, the, from Twitter, from Chris, uh, who you think is the... You know, what's, what do you think is the team's single biggest need, and, and who do you think the core players are that are not going to be on the roster next season? I've got to agree with Paul and say we definitely need at least one new center back that is capable of marshalling um, this line. I think a lot of the great teams have at least one marshal and then a, a competent center back kind of be the second in command to be able to control those. My other part would say is if we're going to continue to play a wingback system, we have to get a better wingbacks to play this game. We need somebody who can cross with more accuracy and we can actually start to develop the the balls that somebody like Laren or a lone front striker can actually deal with. And unfortunately right now I just don't see any of those parts um, staying, I do think that out of anybody on the back line right now, I do think Sebastian Hines stays. I think he's no international spot. I think he's low on the cap space. And I think if he has a good partner next to him, he can grow into somebody for this team. All right. So who do you think, which core players are not on the roster next year? I think I'm going to shock. People, I, I think No Serino is definitely gone. Um, I think that my biggest shock will be is I think Molino gets a move somewhere else outside of MLS. 
Well, that would suck. Uh, it would suck, but I, I don't. <laughs> I don't see them being able to do it. I think we talked about it last season that if he had a, a great breakout season, um, he wouldn't necessarily be back for 2016. I think he's starting to have that breakout season that made him come up um, from USL to Major League Soccer. I think he's proven that he can play at this level. Um, I don't see him going out and making a crazy move to a Premier League side, but. A French-Italian side could certainly come in and, and probably love to have his talents. Um, I also don't think that Breck Shea stays either. Hmm, well, that's some that's some bold stuff right there from you, Andrew. I think that uh, the first part of the question, what do I think is the single biggest need for the team? For me, fullbacks. Mm-hmm. For me, this team doesn't have an adequate fullback on it yep. yet. Uh, I, that, I, you know, no, nothing against Bowden, nothing against Alston, nothing against Ramos or Ambrose. I just don't see two first-team MLS fullbacks on the roster. Mm-hmm. I don't even see one. I, I see a lot of guys who can provide depth. I just don't see, I don't see that number one that you need. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no. Uh, I mean, even a guy like R.J. Allen would be an improvement over these guys. Um, I think that he's played pretty well this year, but in like a guy like Connor Lade, that's that's kind of the guy I'm thinking yep. of. You know, those are the kind of guys that you want to go out and get, and we don't. I don't think we have them. So that for me is is it. I think that the full, the center backs, I think are part of the problem is they're not, they're not on the same page, and it really takes two solid seasons of of two guys working together, to make a really formidable center back pairing. Mm-hmm. And, and these guys haven't been. They haven't. They just haven't. One guy's hurt or one guy's suspended. There's, you know, they they get a run of three or four games in a row together, and then that's it. Then they get split up again. So I just don't see it. But I, I do like Tommy Redding. I think he needs to be better in the air. But I think Tommy Redding is the future at center back for this team. So, um, you know, maybe Hines winning the ball in the air, and then Tommy Redding being that guy uh, with the athleticism and the passing and that kind of thing. So that might be a that might be a decent pairing. For MLS, but the fullback situation needs to be addressed. Uh, core players that are not on the roster next season. I kind of agree with you about Breck. I think that Breck's got some marketability, mm-hmm. and so I think they can move him. They might need to eat a bit of his salary, but maybe not as much as people think. I think there is a market for him, um, but I don't know where that 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 landing spot would be. I think I think Breck might be the odd man out. I just don't know that he fits what Jason Christ wants to do. Yeah. So. There you go. Uh, other key guys. I don't. I don't particularly necessarily agree about Molino. I don't know where he would go. I don't. I don't see him on European radars. Um, potentially Liga MX, but maybe you know maybe not. I don't know. I, I I think he's a solid MLS guy. He seems to me to be a guy who has a future in MLS. And yes, he's talented, and probably could play in some of those other leagues. But I think he's going to need to prove it over another season. Okay. So that's that's just that's just my thought on Kevin and and I really would hate to see him go too. Besides then, because he's really he's the original man. Yeah, I would hate to see him go. <laughs> I just think that yeah. he's got, he's kind of got that like he's that kind of player that I would love to see play in the championship uh, mm. and and play those week in week out. But I know that he also loves living here. He's still very close to home, and he mm. kind of has that laid back mentality that doesn't necessarily fit in with a European league style club but MLS is also moving to that direction and I just think that if if somebody offers some good money I I think that they could move him around because 
we don't know what system Christ is ultimately going to play. Yeah. All right, so your key matchup Sunday, what is it, and uh, what's your predicted scoreline uh, for Orlando City at Chicago Fire? I think my, my key matchup is center backs against Saloniak. I think he played really well for Colorado before his move. Um, as well as now having to deal with Saloniak, they've then also got to deal with David Akam, who has shown how dangerous he is against us repeatedly and how much of a measure he has on Sebastian Hines. Um, it's going to be about those center backs making sure that they can get Alston to pick up a calm and, and kind of slow that run down. And I think it's also about not trying to play such a high line against two very pacey forwards that are more than capable of beating them in speed, but also beating the great wall of Georgia that is Joe Bendick um, <laughs> in this game. Um, Scoreline wise, I am going to go with, I think it's two all. Okay, I think um, for me, I will say that the the key matchup for me is probably the spine of the team. Uh, the two center backs, the two defensive midfielders against the attacking players for Chicago. I think that they need to keep everything wide, especially a calm. And uh, they need to make a concerted effort to just funnel everything to the edges. Mm -hmm. I think if they do that, they'll be successful. I think that Orlando City's got things pretty well locked down when they can keep the other team to the outside. Um, Not on set pieces for some reason. (laughs) But in the run of play, they typically do okay when they keep everybody wide. uh, Provided, you know, it's not like on a quick counter where they can fall asleep and, and be missing a guy. But I think when they have time to, to get behind the ball and stay organized in the middle of the pitch, I think uh, forcing things wide is, is generally a good thing for Orlando City. So that's what I'm going to look for. Um, I think that this team's still going to go through some growing pains. I, I hesitate to predict a win on the road because there's only been one and it was in the first road game of the season. Uh, I think, Chicago comes home a little bit upset with themselves. And, and, you know, Paul said, you know, maybe they're maybe they're trying to get over it still. But I think the way you get over it is you go out and you play hard in that next game. And I think that's going to make things difficult. I also think it'll be a draw, but maybe I see it more as a 1-1. I think Orlando right now, especially if Molino doesn't play. If Molino doesn't play, I don't see a lot of goals for Orlando. Um, so if he doesn't play, I definitely see it as a 1-1 draw. If he does play, maybe it's a more open game and maybe it's a 2-2 draw. I'm, I, I just can't predict. I can't predict a win on the road right now when there's been so few of those. And also, Jason Christ has a win and a loss, so he's got he's to gotta now complete the set and get the tie. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I will point out, Jason uh, Christ in an alligator shirt, 1-0, uh, with the polo shirt, 0-1. That's some, uh, yeah, he's got to make sure he gets that uh, that alligator shirt back on. Yeah, it's Florida team. Get the gator back on the shirt. Yep. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, who did you have scoring your goals, by the way? Uh, I think Kakar scores one. And, yeah, and I'm going to say I think MPG gets one. He's, he didn't score too many for San Jose, but I think that in this system and what crisis brought him in to do, um, he's more than capable of breaking down a, a Chicago team that may be a little bit frustrated with themselves because they had put all their eggs in one basket for the Open Cup, um, and he's able to frustrate them and maybe draw something um, 
away and, and get a goal. I think that MPG gets his first Orlando City assist. Ooh. And I think he sets up Kyle Laren and Kid Fantastic gets back on the score sheet. That's what I see happening. Okay. Maybe if there's if it's a two two draw, maybe Kaká gets one from the spot. Yeah, I mean, like maybe. I say, he could he could he, he, <laughs> MPG's capable of drawing one. I mean, he almost drew one against Seattle right outside the box. Um, yep. I think he's more than capable of getting that. Maybe that's his assist. That's what you're seeing in your dreams is that it's an assist <laughs> through getting fouled. In my in my green dreams, <laughs> uh, my dragon dreams. Uh, okay, well. I think that we've done all the damage we can do here to the podcasting world for one week. <laughs> um, we've set podcasting back yet again here on the Mainland Podcast, episode number 61. Uh, we are just about out of time, so I will please direct you to themainland.com for uh, all of the content that we bring. Uh, I want to thank you for listening and ask you, if you like what you hear, please give us a good review on iTunes uh, because that's, uh, that's something that can help us out, and it doesn't cost a penny. And, uh, you know, you can follow us on Twitter, at The Mainland, and you can uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, we are uh, we're everywhere in the social media world, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's it. Episode 61, in the books. And uh, we will be back next week to talk about the Chicago Fire and uh, Orlando City from Toyota Park. And uh, until that time, on behalf of Andrew Harrison, I'm Michael Citro signing off saying, Go City!